Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion coming to you this week from London for this very special transatlantic episode. This week, we'll talk about big banks and the billions of dollars that they're both making and coughing up to the feds. We'll talk about big tobacco getting bigger or smaller, depending on how you look at it, with the merger of Reynolds and Lorillard. And then we'll turn to the saga of the joint strike fighter, the most expensive fighter plane the world has ever seen. And last but not least, we'll wrap up with our lightning round of the numbers that caught our attention this week. But first, let me introduce a very special guest, the one, the only, John Gapper, the business commentator, FT editor, and general all-around awesome person at the Financial Times. We're here in the Financial Times studio in London. John, welcome. Thank you. And tell us what your number is this week. My number is 100 billion. 100 billion. That could be the largest number we've ever had on the podcast. That's an awesomely big number. And joining us from New York is regular guest Kathy O'Neill, the head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. What's your number this week, Kathy? My number is 3.2. Hi, John. Hi, Kathy. <laughs> And as for me, my number is 12,500. So we have a large range of numbers to get to. But first, we are going to talk about banks because it's a money podcast. So every so often we need to talk about banks. And I'm going to throw out a few more numbers here. We've just had bank earnings season, which means that all of the big banks have released their second quarter earnings. Uh, over the past week or two. And Morgan Stanley, we found out yesterday, made $1.3 billion in the second quarter alone. Goldman Sachs made $2 billion. Wells Fargo made $5.7 billion. JP Morgan Chase made $6 billion. Um, then there's Citigroup, which would have made $4 billion if it hadn't needed to write off $3.8 billion as a result of something we're about to talk about. So it only made $200 million in the end. Um, Bank of America man managed to make $2.3 billion, even after it wound up paying $4 billion in these things, these litigation expenses. Citigroup, of course, also settled a court case to the tune of $7 billion to settle claims that it had 
misleadingly sold mortgage securities during the financial crisis or just before the financial crisis. But the point I want to make here is that between those big six banks in America, even after accounting for the billions of dollars that are being shipped off to the Justice Department, the six big banks between them managed to make $17.5 billion in one quarter. Add in the fines and stuff which aren't really repeating – and we're basically talking a run rate of $100 billion a year in profits, which is an absolutely mind-blowing amount of money. So, John, tell me, is this a sign that something is very wrong? Is this a sign that the Fed has gone too far? Is this, is, is this sustainable? Do we want banks to be making this kind of money? Well, I think uh, it's certainly a very, very big number, but we've also got to look at it from the other perspective, which is what the CFO of a bank would say, which is if you take Goldman, it's making a lot of money. But Two billion dollars a quarter? Two a billion dollars a quarter, a lot of money for most people. But from a Goldman's perspective, its return on equity is only 11%. The poor thing. Something at your the heart peak, bleed. totally bleeds. <laughs> I, I lie awake at night worrying about them. Uh, but at the peak, they were making a return on equity, that was in 2007, of 34%. So from their point of view, they're making a third as much money as they used to. It's just that they've uh, got an awful lot more equity, so the number that they have to make to earn a return on it is higher. So I guess the real question here is, these are very, very, very big financial institutions, consolidated financial institutions. The numbers are going to be big. How do we look at that? Do we just say billions is too much? Or do we say, actually, we should look at it like an investor does, which is how much money are they really making for the money that's in the institution? Kathy, how do you look at it? Well, I don't look at it either of those ways um, as as usual. Um, I look at it as they're so big that they own the system. And so one of the things I did this week is I, I actually read the statement of facts for the Department of Justice, like the little piece of paper that's nine pages long that sort of summarizes the charges against Citigroup. And, I, I you know, it's an incredibly boring document. Even in nine pages, it's just incredible how bored you can get. But I, what I did was I just looked at the way it was written. And I noticed something, which was that in nine pages, Citigroup was mentioned as sort of an actor. You know, this then Citigroup did this, then Citigroup did that as if it was, in fact, a person, in every sentence except two. And one of them was when it mentioned that there was a trader who sent an email where they basically said, it's time to pray. They were talking about the very, very poor quality of the mortgages that they were securitizing. So, I mean, basically, to back up, the statement of facts explains that Citigroup securitized a bunch of terrible mortgages and should have known better and did know better. And the smoking gun was this email from this one trader. And the other exception of the way this document was written was they mentioned a managing director, not by name, that looked at the firm that was selling the mortgages and looked at a due diligence report. And that report explained that the firm itself claimed it didn't have internal controls for the mortgages it was selling. So, you know, my conclusion is that yeah, they're big numbers. They're so big, in fact, that we don't really have number sense when it comes to $6 billion. This, like, is, this was... is the fine that Citigroup agreed to pay in order to settle all of the charges against it. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. So the questions that are left unanswered that I'd like to know is, who did this? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And is it going to happen again? And none of that's answered from the suit. 
John, are you remotely satisfied? Clearly, Cathy isn't by this $7 billion fine. Does this sate any sense of John Gapper justice? I mean, my my worry is that they that the large number covers up a lack of accountability in a in a strange way, which is that it looks like justice is being dealt out to the bank, but there's very little individual accountability. Uh, there are just these very large fines, which in the end have to be the it comes out of the equity, it has to be rebuilt. But individuals don't really, certainly not senior executives, do not take the rap for these things. And that was definitely the case in the Credit Suisse case where it pleaded guilty to a criminal offence, was fined a very large amount of money and yet no senior executive stepped down. And in fact, these fines, it seems to me that the fines are directly proportional to the profitability of the bank, that JP Morgan, after becoming hugely profitable, then paid $17 billion of fines and it could easily afford it. Citigroup was on its last legs for many years and didn't suffer any fines. But now it's making money, as we've seen, it, you know, and then this quarter when it would have made $4 billion, now is the time that the Justice Department comes along and says, oh, we're going to levy $4 billion of fines. And, you know, your equity isn't going to be hurt because you're still managing to eke out a small profit this quarter. And, and so Felix, I agree. Yeah. Sorry. That, you know, the way you introduce this topic sort of says it all. Like it, it was an accounting issue for them. Like it's not a culpability issue. It's not a guilt issue. They they literally have been, you know, given enough time to pr- get profitable again so that they can afford the fine that they are now paying for their misdeeds. It's But it's it, at the end of the day, it's an, it, it's, and it's a strange accounting thing. A lot of the controversy around this figure of $6 billion is because the Citigroup lawyers were arguing that they only had a certain amount of market share versus the other bad banks, and therefore their fine should be much smaller. Curiously, the only bank that I know of which has been fined a large amount of money, which there's a case to be made that it really can't afford, is the non-American bank, is BNP Paribas. Their $10 billion fine is actually very, very large compared to the size of their capital, which is not what you can say about any of the fines um, against JP Morgan or Bank of America or Citigroup or anyone else. John? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, you've got a government and a set of regulators, which clearly when the financial crisis occurred, their first instinct was to try to prop the banks up with as much money as possible. And now, as Cathy said, they think, well, they've got a bit of money, so we can take some of it back. Uh, and maybe they don't have the same calculation with a French bank because it's, it's going to be the French government that has to step in <laughs> if it gets into trouble. So that doesn't weigh on their minds quite as much. One last comment about this. Matt Levine from Bloomberg mentioned this, and it does seem rather strange that like a good chunk of the $6 billion is actually going to homeowners. And, you know, I'm the first person in line for the sake of homeowners. But to a large extent, this is a suit that was to protect the investors of the securities, securitized mortgages. And it's kind of strange that the money's going to the homeowners rather than the investors. Exactly, because what Citigroup did wrong here was it sold a bunch of nuclear waste to bond investors and told those bond investors that it was AAA rated, gold-plated, they could never lose any money. And why homeowners should be the beneficiary of this settlement, you're absolutely right, Cathy, is um, peculiar. But I'm going to stay on the subject here of companies which the US government wants to be quite profitable so that they can afford very large fines. Um, Cathy, tell us about big tobacco. 
So this week we've heard that Reynolds wants to buy up Lorillard. So Reynolds is a tobacco company. They they sell Camel cigarettes and they want to buy up Lorillard, which sells Newport cigarettes for $27.4 billion. And, you know, as the resident fact-checking conspiracy theorist of our group here, my immediate reaction to hearing that one tobacco company is buying up another tobacco company is like, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is terrible. Think of just how much their lobbying power is going to increase from this. And so being the fact-checking conspiracy theorist that I am, I, I looked a little bit at lobbying by the tobacco industry. And I noticed that since 2002, it's just absolutely plummeted. Basically, tobacco companies do not give money in any sizable amount to American congressmen at this point. And then I was like, okay, so it must be an international emerging markets issue that they want to have power so that they have international treaties so that they can sell to Africans or something. But that's also not true in this case because Reynolds, it's actually Reynolds American. It's an entirely American company, and they sold their international counterpart in 1999 to Japan. So it really looks like you're talking about a tobacco company combined with another tobacco company to compete with the biggest one, which is Altria Group, which um, sells Marlboros, which accounts for like half of the cigarette sales in the United States. So no matter how hard you tried, you just can't... This is a plain vanilla merger where people try to beef up to compete against a bigger guy and you, you can't actually find anything wrong with it. Do you think that they've just given up, Kathy? Do you think their story is just so bad that they've just given up lobbying? Well, look, I, I'm going to defend my conspiracy theorist approach because, after all, this is the company that got in a lot of trouble for Joe Camel, that character, that cartoon character that was supposed to make cigarette smoking appealing to children. And they also got caught giving out free cigarettes at events with children. So, I mean, everybody should be aware of this. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I, I didn't find anything here. Like, I did have a couple questions, and I'll, I'll ask them to both of you. Actually, I'm going to say I found the opposite of a conspiracy here. I was actually blown away because when I did look at lobbying and tobacco companies, I looked at the amount of lobbying power they had in the 80s. And the historical story here was so bad. And they were so like Congress was so bought at that point by tobacco companies. And it's just not true anymore. Like truth actually worked here. And it's actually kind of an inspiring story if you think about it. Maybe also that they've, they've essentially given up on a market that is in decline and that they're really not that interested anymore. Of course, they want, to, they want the enormous cash flow out of the market, but they're really most interested in expanding internationally where people are smoking more. The statistic is that Americans used to smoke, on average, 4,000 cigarettes per year. They're now down to 1,300 cigarettes per year, and that's obviously falling, which is very good news, which means that what we have here is a classic industry, a little bit like dial-up internet, which is an industry which is in decline, which throws off massive profit margins, but which is certain to go to zero eventually. And one of the interesting paradoxes here is that there was a multi-hundred billion dollar settlement from the tobacco companies with the U.S. government where they said, we're sorry for making you all die of lung cancer. We're going to pay for education campaigns and healthcare and various other good things. And so in a way, the U.S. government now needs the U.S. tobacco industry to be profitable so that it can continue to pay that massive fine. Year and not in just year the out. U.S. government, but U.S. states. And especially the U.S. states. Yeah, so that brings up the question I have, which is the antitrust issue. Like you know, some people sort of suggested that the combined company 
might be just too big. And they actually didn't just merge. They actually sold off some of themselves to Imperial British Tobacco, I believe, in order to avoid the antitrust. But And the numbers here, by the way, are huge. They sold a loss-making electric cigarette for $7 billion. It's amazing <laughs> how much money there really still is. And that this is actually partly a function of low interest rates, that you just have these cash flows are worth so much money these days just because interest rates are so low. Well, from an antitrust point of view, it's interesting. Historically, um, the American tobacco company was broken up in 2011. And th this is by uh, on antitrust grounds at the height of the trust busting era. And this is actually two of those companies getting back together again. Oh, it's like Marbell. First you break it up and then it gets back together again. Yeah. You, eventually it's going to get back together again. It just might take some time. So, I mean, but when I think about antitrust, I think about protecting people's access to a valuable natural resource or something. And cigarettes are definitely not that. So do we really care? It's an interesting deal because it's been taking place uh, in the same week as a lot of uh, – there's a very large media deal, which we'll come on to later. And actually – it hasn't attracted that much attention. I think people have sort of given up on, for the size of the deal, there's just not that much well, excitement. Matt, Matt Levine at Bloomberg View, I think, made the very good point that what happens if you create a monopoly, if you have antitrust concerns, is that the cigarette manufacturers will raise their prices because they don't have to compete against other cigarette manufacturers. And from a public health perspective, you actually want that. You want the cigarette prices to go up. So, you know, there's nothing to worry about here. That's exactly my point. And, and if you're going to be really cynical, you're going to say, but if they raise their prices up too much, then we're going to get less taxes from them. And that is the only negative thing I can even come up with. And this is the first and last time that Kathy O'Neill is ever going to sound like one of those supply-side economists who says, if you raise prices, you'll make less money in taxes. <laughs> you know what? I'm going I'm to stop now. Just, I'll just, just, stop. just stop before you dig yourself too much into a hole there, Kathy. We will move on to topic number three. John, you just came back from Farnborough. Where is Farnborough? Very good question, Felix. For those who don't know, Farnborough is about a half-hour train ride to the southeast of London. It's a very pretty little um, commuter town. And uh, you go down there, and every second year they have a big international air show. The other year they held it in Paris. Uh, although I'm told that the coming air show is not in Farnborough or Paris, it's in Dubai for rather obvious reasons, because that's where all the money is with the Middle East Airlines. But I went down there this week and I was very excited because I was going to see a plane which has been an awfully long time coming, the F-35, the most costly fighter jet and costly, complex, boondogglingly amazing programme. Uh, a program involving all three services in the States. The Pentagon has been tearing its hair out for years about getting this plane actually up and running. They're going to cost at the moment $110 million each. They're going to be the main fighter aircraft for not only the US, but allied countries such as the UK. And I was looking forward to seeing it actually flying. Before we get on to the question of whether or not this trillion-dollar plane can actually fly... I should jump in here and say that $110 million per plane is absolutely the bottom number you can possibly find for this thing. And depending on who you ask, it can be double that or even more. 
and that the total cost of this plane is somewhere in the $1.5 trillion range, which is a number which is so mind-bogglingly enormous that even... I'm going to leap in here and say a word for Lockheed Martin, who claim, <laughs> they claim the numbers, uh, everybody's got a different number, they claim the number's going to come down to $80 million per plane because there's going to be an awful lot of them. And, John Gapper, do you believe them? I've got no idea of doing the economics, <laughs> although I would, the only thing I would observe is that Lockheed Martin, since it makes the plane, little bits of the plane in 46 different states of the United States, as well as several other countries, has got enormous lobbying power. Cathy, I, I, I'm going to have to just make a wild guess here and say that you don't really approve of spending a trillion dollars making fighter jets. <laughs> Right you are, Felix. Um, you know, and it's fascinating to me. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I read these two articles that you guys sent me about this, and I really concluded that this is kind of like a, an excited nerd boy topic. There's something about it that just gets people really excited that I don't really understand. But anyway, from the perspective of a modeler, there's a couple points I want to make. The, f- the first one is that when you have a problem with too many constraints... It's just a generic truth that you end up with a solution, if it exists at all, that is not satisfying in any specific way. So you're boxing it in in all dimensions. And there might be, you know, 25 dimensions. And in this case, there are more. You know, you want it to be stealth and you want it to have um, you want it to go very fast and you want it to be able to fly in rain, which ended up not even working. And they also wanted crazy things like being able to take off vertically. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that was a huge one. You want to take up vertically, but you don't want to be too heavy and all these all these constraints. And then so you think of your space of solutions. 26 constraints give you a space of solutions in 26 space, 26 dimensional space, if it exists at all. And it's just boxed in by all these different constraints. And then at the end of the day, you don't get optimal answers for any one of those. So that's the first point. That's just a general well, point. Well, let's, let's stick on that for a minute, John. It, it, with hindsight... It would have been cheaper, would it not, to have simply built separate planes for the Air Force and the Navy and the Marines rather than trying to do one size fits all? Yeah. I mean, the, there's a RAND Corporation study uh, just recently which suggested that the, the, the principle of the, of the Joint Strike Fighter is that if you make a single thing that the Navy can use, the Air Force can use, the Marines can use, different countries can use, it's cheaper overall because it's an all-purpose machine and you've got lots of different markets so you can reduce the unit costs it's a sort of basic economic idea the problem is as Kathy suggested these are incredibly complex and difficult machines anyway and if you try to make it do bells and whistles and different variants you end up with the situation that you've actually had which is it's highly delayed and indeed, at Farnborough this week, when it was supposed to be the showpiece, it didn't turn up. There was no plane. There was no plane. Well, to be fair, there was a replica plane, which I actually sat in, but the star of the show didn't turn up, and it didn't turn up because uh, on one of the test aircrafts, the Pratt & Whitney engine had blown out. But that's the latest in a long line of delays. And the RAND Corporation study suggests that maybe it would have just been better to have built three separate aeroplanes, simpler ones. And let me ask... I am a bit like Kathy. I don't quite understand the the boys with toys aspect of this either. But 
does the world actually need a fifth generation fighter jet anyway haven't we moved into a world of drones now why do we need human powered fighter jets in the first place well that's a very good question i mean there is the question about whether or not this will be the last fighter jet because in many ways if you're a drone builder you're in a in a uh, a better business, if I can put it that way, even though it sounds appalling, and they kill people, uh, drones. But as a business, it maybe that's a better business than making fighter jets. So I don't know. But at the moment, the armed forces would say, well, look, we've got F-16s and F-15s and F-18s, and all those planes we're very familiar with from seeing um, old films like Top Gun, and they date from the Nixon era. They first came into service in the early 70s, and so they're getting a little bit old, and we need a new one. Now, these programs take so long, they take decades, that the danger is by the time the thing actually arrives, maybe the entire concept of the fighter jet will be, frankly, a matter of history. We can but hope. Well, it brings up the other point I wanted to make, which is that um, they talked about a simulation in which these fighter jets, if they ever actually worked, would lose out to Chinese fighter jets. And, you know, I worked with Monte Carlo simulations a lot in finance. And what you do is you run 10,000 simulations and you kind of weight the simulations in terms of how probable they are. So when we're talking about how likely is it that we're going to have one of these battles with the Chinese, you know, just using fighter jets against fighter jets, and I'm sure it was more complicated than that, I just don't understand how it could be explained in one simulation. It just seems bizarre. But it wasn't explained. Yeah, exactly. But then again, if we're not going to have one of these fighter jet against fighter jet battles, why are we building this plane in the first place? Right. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention is that there did seem to be this interesting Obamacare website-like element to this where they had the people in the lab with computer programs and, you know, the helmets that didn't work because the computer programs hadn't been completely written and the simulations in the lab versus the actual pilots. And that disconnect seemed really wide. And I, as a person who talks and thinks about complexity in large systems a lot, that's just going to get worse. The Joint Strike Fighter, it's a bit like the stock market. It's too complex for anyone to really understand. Kathy. We're going to draw a line under Merchants of Death at this point and move on. You have the smallest number, so you go first. Oh, okay. There are advantages to having the smallest number. You were 35, I believe? My number is 3.2. 3.2? Sorry, yes. Yeah, three point, it's pretty small. But it's, it's not that small if you think of it as a return on a single day, which it was 3.2% return on the day that the Citigroup settlement was announced the $6 billion settlement with the Department of Justice. But this is the amount that Citigroup stock went to? Yes. Yeah, Citigroup stock jumped 3.2%. Um, and it just it's just kind of depressing. I mean, I don't really have much to say about it, except that um, you'd think that the shareholders would be like, wow, that's a big fine, and that's bad news for the integrity of this bank. But I guess that was old news. And the good news was that we now know exactly how much money um, that we're going to have to switch off on the accounting. And that was about it. And uncertainty had been discontinued. And that's why it was a positive news for the market. It's just, it's just such an ironic counterintuitive thing that when you get in trouble and it's announced, your stock goes up like it's good news. Yes. That's maybe a sign that the Citigroup lawyers 
were doing their job quite well and managed to that seven billion dollars or six billion dollars or four billion dollars. These things are always very hard to pin a number on, but maybe it wasn't that much money after all. My number is twelve thousand five hundred. Uh, twelve thousand five hundred is the number of jobs that are being cut at Nokia in the wake of Nokia's acquisition by Microsoft. Microsoft is cutting 18,000 jobs in total, of which 12,500 are in Nokia. The interesting thing here is that 12,500 is fully half. It's 50% of the number of Nokia employees. When Nokia was bought by Microsoft, it had 25,000 employees, and half of them are being fired uh, by Microsoft. How this makes sense, I don't know, but this is one of the more gruesome bits of capitalism and goes to show just how much Apple and Google have completely transformed the world of phones because Nokia was this world-beating company uh, up until not very long ago, and now it's fallen into the arms of of Microsoft and half of its jobs are being slashed to the stroke. Yes, and another rather gruesome thing was Stephen Elop's memo announcing the redundancies which got to the point in the 11th paragraph. Stephen Elop being the head of Nokia and and I guess number two at Microsoft. That's right. A man not very widely liked in Finland because <laughs> uh, there is a feeling that he came across from Microsoft, managed to ruin Nokia and then was hired back by Microsoft. So whether or not that's correct, that's what some people there feel. The, the memo, I, I, I would encourage you to read it online. It's a masterpiece of incomprehensible business speak and gobbledygook and if you're going to fire twelve and a half thousand people in one memo you would like to think that you could do it with a bit more compassion than was shown in this memo i think that's right and to be honest a little bit more honesty that journalists uh, have many faults but at least they put the figure in the first paragraph john gapper you have a huge number i do what's your number my number is a hundred billion that's a big number that's huge and it's not actually a number that exists at the moment. <laughs> uh, it is the figure not that Rupert Murdoch's 20th Century Fox has... 21st Century Fox. 21st, sorry, I'm behind the times. <laughs> uh, Do try to keep up. You're right. It's not the number, it's not the 80 billion that 21st Century Fox has bid or bid for Time Warner uh, this week, or in fact in June, but they've been covering it up. The number came out this week. It's the amount that analysts think that Fox may well have to bid in order to get Time Warner to agree to form an enormous media conglomerate out of two enormous media conglomerates. The interesting thing for me about this bid is that it was in a combination of cash and stock. And Rupert Murdoch bid roughly $35 billion in cash and $50 billion in, you're going to love this, non-voting Fox stock. So even though he really genuinely wanted to issue $50 billion of new stock in his own company, not one share of which carried a single vote so that he could continue to have control of the entire thing. Um, How does he get away with it, John? It's quite extraordinary, actually. And and the other thing which interests me about it is that uh, Rupert Murdoch and 21st Century Fox will be appealing to the Time Warner shareholders and saying they're they're adding value, their offer is worth this much. But say that Time Warner wanted to do a Pac-Man and reverse on News Corp, no matter what figure they put 
put up, Rupert Murdoch, who controls it, would just say no. So it's a quite bizarre situation where you have one company that is controlled by dual-class stock, another one that isn't, and that that gives Rupert Murdoch an enormous advantage. And the fact is that the U.S. capital markets and U.S. shareholders and U.S. legislators accept this. They accept the principle of dual-class stock. And this deal is one of the most bizarre aspects of it. And this is also explains why Alibaba Group is going public in New York in September, because the Hong Kong regulators said, there's no way we're going to let you get away with this kind of crazy dual-class structure. And the Americans were like, come, join us, join the party. We, we're perfectly happy with this. That's right. And it's not just media companies. Of course, it's Google and all the tech companies that have done this. And sometimes it's not even dual-class stock, it's three classes of stock. So uh, I'm afraid in my rather traditional British way, I disapprove of the entire thing. You wouldn't get away with it here, Felix. (laughs) Guys, all we need to do is prove that they're all killing people with lung cancer and then wait 40 years and this will be a good story. I I have to say that from from this perch in the Financial Times in London, we're we're sneering at the the Americans with their amateurish attempts at running a stock market. How they get away with it, I have no idea. That is it, I'm afraid, for this edition of Slate Money. Thank you very much for listening. If you liked the show, please subscribe in iTunes. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you have something nice to say about us, please leave us a review. And if you have any comments or complaints or praise or anything else, you can write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Cathy O'Neill and John Gaffer at the Financial Times, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.